Welcome to Actual People, a podcast hosted by me, Chauncey Zulkin, dedicated to meaningful conversations about the evolving landscape of our lives and the power of our own creativity and imagination to make magic. Today, I'm going to be getting into the subject of getting older, how sudden it feels, could it have something to do with the pandemic, and how it might be different for this generation than the boomers or all the other generations that came before us. Specifically, I'm going to talk about turning 50 because that is the age that I turned last year. But I think some of what we are discussing can be applied to turning 40, 30 on one side or 60 or 70 on the other. Some of this is universal to our time, more than the age we're advancing into. The world is changing so rapidly on a global level and on a macro individual level affecting each one of us. There are so many micro transitions that we go through that we never really had to deal with before, or to put it another way, that we never had the privilege of having access to before. These life transitions are seeming to go faster and faster, and there are a multitude of transitions splintering one into the other. These shifts that we have ahead of us, they're very nonlinear. Thinking about age for me is about mortality and self-perception as well as physical limitations, but it's also about seeing an end to some of the limits that we had in the first part of our life. In the first part of your life, you're limited by this pressure to achieve certain milestones in a relatively short period of time between the ages of 20 and 35. You need to achieve a certain level in your career that you have set out for yourself, or you're trying to find that career. It feels very linear at that point. It's one thing after another, and then it becomes a lot less linear, and it becomes a lot less prescribed. In my own life, I had kids at 40. So by the time I had my kids, I'd had a few businesses, I'd lived the expat life, but when you're in the thick of it, People are coupling off. You're getting wedding invitations. If you want to have kids, you're feeling the pressure of your biological clock, which is a very real thing. And it's like, will I or won't I? It feels very suspenseful. Am I going to find a partner? Am I going to make enough money to be able to have kids? Especially in a place like New York. But wherever you are, if everybody around you is getting married and that is the focus, creating a family and creating a home life, It's a lot of pressure. When you're going through that whole period, it's a lot of pressure. And then, you know, I think back to when I was a kid and I was in my father's kitchen. He was making me a hot dog and he lived in this really swank townhouse. He was probably in his 40s or 50s. He was divorced. He was making a lot of money. He was dating attractive younger women, which was, you know, a status symbol in the 80s in Miami and still is. Um, It's not very feminist, but that's the reality. That was what was going on. He was making money. He was throwing parties. He was living it up. And he told me that he had done the things. He had gotten married. He'd had kids. He'd made his money. Now he was going to have fun. He was going to live his life. Never mind, I was probably around 13 and needed my father. That's beside the point. Or a point for a different episode. But in my very different context, I also feel like I've done the things. Whether I've done what I wanted to do or what was so pressing and important for me in my 20s, whether I've done all of those things or not, I'm kind of past that hyper-capitalistic panic, some of, some of those societal expectations. I think about Erickson's stages of psychosocial development, which I had to look up to remind myself of, but, and I did, and I thought it was really interesting between 
but between 12 and 18, we want to fit into society and know our role. Even the -the out-of-the-box thinkers and the renegades, those are roles too. And then from 18 to 40, that's when we find a partner or find our tribe or we are seeking that. And that was always a painful thing for me because I never really felt like I found my tribe and I never quite found my partner, at least so far. I thought I did. I got married at 37 and I had kids at 40, but I got divorced. So if you're past 40, it would make sense that you move on to a new stage, whether you feel you've succeeded in those earlier stages or not. Now you're healing from the pain and trauma of the first half of your life. I literally have a print, and it's the only quote in my house. When you first walk in the door, I have a small framed print. It's part of a gallery wall of of prints that are important to me. And it says in white letters on a black background, be who you needed when you were younger. I'm a single mom of two daughters. I'm raising them on my own, on my terms. My home is my castle. I'm doing it my way with their input. It's their castle too. And it's not easy, but I'm doing it my way. Somewhere between 40 and 55, I'd say, you realize that this is your clay to mold. There are a lot of outside forces that we cannot control, but we realize how much power we have inside, how much force and strength inside of us that we have that we can harness. And spoiler alert, after 65, Erickson's phase is called ego integrity versus despair. I don't think you have to wait until 65. I think we're mixing it up. Instead of waiting for despair and regret, we can integrate our own lessons and the death of our ego into the second half of our lives with a kind of joy and a sense of peace and less emphasis on societal norms, which are all for intent and purposes up in the air. We're all reinventing. I have conversations with people every day in my peer group who are rewriting their own scripts and in much shorter cycles as the map of how life is supposed to go is being blown to bits. It is a completely new territory. From AI to jobs going away to companies folding to mass layoffs, The idea of a linear career is just not what it once was. Entrepreneurship is not what it once was. Nothing is a sure thing. And it makes all of us have to kick into our survival skills as well as look deep into what we really are and what we are really meant to do and what we really love in order to figure out what to do next. This is on the individual level, again, and on a mass level. Everything is being kicked up. It reminds me of Poltergeist when they built that house, that entire subdivision over ancestral lands, and the past comes clawing its way through that swimming pool. Things that have been deeply buried are coming up for us as a society and for us as people living in that society. And nothing is what it was when we planted this false sense of security and this false sense of order in the 1950s in the United States, among other places. We built suburbia and we built this sense of post-wartime peace with this paternalistic pecking order and hierarchy that put people into small boxes. And there was this sense of papered over superficial peace and prosperity that we created in the 50s that was really just building over the mass graves of torture, pain, trauma, 
inequality. Nonetheless, as fraught and problematic as the past was, there was a certain level of predictability in the structure that we built. That is why the far right is reacting the way that they are, because they are accustomed to that privilege and that system that kept everything in a certain, albeit ugly, place. And on that note, in the stage of life that I'm in, as well as the time in history that I'm in, my standards are a lot higher in relationships because I've had my children. I've accomplished some modicum of success that makes me feel like I've ticked some sort of box. And for me, frankly, I've gone through enough trauma and hard lessons that I'm happy with having peace. I was going to say just having peace. God, that is such an accomplishment. Having another person in my life, a partner, that's just the, not even the icing on the cake because the icing is the most delicious part. It's the cherry on top. Now I can be more honest about what I want and really understand the value of what I have. I'm grateful and happy to be able to play Scrabble with my kids. I'm grateful and happy to be able to have a home and nice neighbors. I'm grateful and happy to have presence of mind and to be able to read a good book. There are things that I aspire to have beyond what I have, but those are also the cherry on top. In the past five years, I lost my father. I learned I was BRCA positive and had a double mastectomy and full hysterectomy. I know how precious life can be. And just having peace in your house, having emotional clarity, that is worth so much more than all of these other things that you can chase. I'm not saying don't chase them. I'm chasing them. But my God, those things are such a big deal. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying aging is ecstasy. I don't like aging. I don't like that my metabolism is slower. I have never done Botox and it's not for any moral reason, but because I don't think it would look good on me. Or maybe I just haven't gotten to it yet. But as I, as I see the signs of aging, I'm thinking, what style of aging do I want to embrace? Do I want to be like my glamorous grandmother who just died in November at 104 years old, who never had any work done, always had long, thick black hair and wore red lipstick and nothing else, always dressed to the nines? Do I want to be like those stock photos of women with chic silver bobs and Norma Kamali style minimalist clothing, staring contentedly or maybe even smugly out of a window? Do I want to look like a real housewife with balloon cheeks and lips? Like my face has been peeled back over an orange? Like, like Madonna? Well, the short answer is no, I don't want that. You're probably thinking something in between, lady. Jesus. I'm definitely not the one for the no-fuss bob and sensible shoes. That actually made my throat close. Either way, aging is scary, and not just because our bodies are breaking down, but because before our generation, there were sharp differences between the age groups. I think those sharp differences are disappearing, and the reason for this is that people are living longer, and people have more chapters in their life book than they used to have. So how come we only talk about millennials and boomers? Sure, Gen X is a smaller population, but we're a pretty important part of the story. We literally don't exist in popular culture or in the media. Even though our generation gave the world hip hop, console, video games, and the iPhone. We're not really represented in movies or popular culture in a way I can recognize. I feel like we don't exist. I am Gen X. 
So Gen X is 1965 to 1980. I was born in 1973, so I am firmly in the middle of that generation. I argued years ago that I was not Gen X because when I was graduating from high school, that's when Slacker came out and all the kids in Slacker, this seminal Gen X movie, those kids were post-grad characters that were like five to 10 years older than me. I had nothing to do with their lives. They were like 25 to 30 years old. I even looked it up. Less than zero, the other big Gen X movie, which was first a book, was set in the early 80s. I was preteen and they were living in New York and they'd graduated from college. I actually went to the same college as Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote it, and we miss each other by a decade. I was class of 95, he was class of 86. The third movie I think about for Gen X is Reality Bites. So I was in college, I had just moved to New York, or maybe I hadn't even moved to New York yet, but was in New York when I saw the movie. And they were big grownups out in the real world. My sister's three years older than me. It was like her year or even older than her. That's how I perceived those characters. So I related to that movie definitely a lot more than Slacker or less than zero at the time, but still older. Yet here we are. I'm Gen X. It's inarguable. But, you know, when I look at the memes and the jokes about Gen X. I follow the hashtag. I don't really relate. I didn't drink from a water hose in the backyard. I mean, maybe once or twice, it definitely does not define my childhood. I wasn't a latchkey kid. A lot of those memes and jokes about Gen X just don't feel like me at all. I'd say I came of age in the golden era of hip hop. I grew up in Miami in the 80s and was a preteen in the tail end of the hairband era. I listened to The Cure and New Wave, but it was still, that was also from the late 80s people who were, you know, in their early 20s. So I kind of looked up to them. I roller skated around to the old school Sugar Hill Gang when I was six or seven. I would watch video jukebox. I'm sure a lot of you don't know what video jukebox is, but it actually started in Miami and it was a video channel, an alternative to MTV that just played hip hop music videos. And um, Two Live Crew was popular at the time in Miami, Miami bass music. And I just would watch one video after another. And I was heavily influenced by that. When I was younger, I loved Michael Jackson. I loved Prince. And then moving into my early teens, I loved hip hop. I listened to Tribe Called Quest and Biggie's Ready to Die album in college and everything else in between. But those two albums are really seminal to my early 20s. Other friends listened to Nirvana and The Breeders. I was out at nightclubs when all the Puff, when Puff was, when Diddy was Puff Daddy, all the Puff Daddy songs were super popular. Bad Boy Productions. I worked for Rockaware, which was um, Rockefeller Records clothing brand. I remember I would go into the Rockaware offices at Rockefeller Records and sit there and I was writing copy about all the clothes. And we would sit there listening to Wendy Williams when she just had her radio show. All the big Mary J. Blige songs were out, the Wu-Tang, Mob Deep, DMX, Jay-Z, all those great songs of the late 90s and early aughts. So how can people born in 1980 and people born in 1965 have that much in common? But now we call each other by generations more than an age. We are really defined by generations. And I don't really feel like Gen X is one generation, but I do feel a solidarity in that 
We are definitely not millennials and we are definitely not boomers. Up until 2010, I thought I was like a millennial. You know, I liked indie music. I liked to go to festivals. I, you know, rode a bike around Barcelona. Up until 2010, I kind of thought I was like the millennials. I didn't really see a difference that much. You know, I kind of liked millennial pink and I liked the, you know, big script that was painted on walls at coffee shops. I thought that was kind of just what was going on. It wasn't until, you know, 2010, 2011, when I started to realize it was a more marketed and packaged version of things that were our signature, like irony, hyperbole, critical race theory, and knitted cozies with the F word on it. Those things came squarely out of Gen X and were a result of postmodernism. And we still have a lot to contribute. We still got shit to do. We still want to look good and be sensual beings and be creative and start new businesses. I was talking to a friend recently and he was saying that he would never start. He, you know, He's my age. We went to high school together and he was saying, well, I started a business when I was 25. I would never do that now. It would be too big a risk for my family, which I thought didn't seem very modern because the people I know are constantly reinventing themselves in some ways because we want to, in other ways because we have to. It's really a blend. Ethan Hawke said on the Smartless podcast, he said he was starting his old man career. Shit. I really believe that we are changing the way that we age. The thing that remains, though, is that we only have 25, 30 years, if you're 50, like good years, active years, on average, left in our lives. We are getting more aches and pains. People around me, some are getting cancer. Some people have died. My father died, and though he was almost 80, he was never an old man. Even with stage four prostate cancer, he just wasn't old. He was still trying to figure out how to get to San Tropez to hang out with his friends in the summer when the doctor told him he couldn't fly. He died a few weeks later. It's humbling that my father's gone. And I've discovered the power of denial five years in, and I'm still in denial of my father dying. I guess I just think I'll see him later. A lot of the icons of my era are already gone. Sinead O'Connor, that hit hard. I felt like we abandoned her. Prince, Michael Jackson, David Bowie, Whitney Houston, Biggie, Tupac, long dead. So, so it's a vulnerable time as well as being a really empowering time, this stage of life for us now. At 50 years old, it's supposed to be the time when you really know who you are. Andre 3000 just came out with an album that is all flute. He's saying that he has nothing left to talk about as a rapper. He's one of the most brilliant, respected rappers, brought us some of the best songs in rap music. He said he just doesn't have anything left to say. So I think it's interesting. Do you feel at 45, 50 that you have things to say? And and if so, are they different things? Maybe you have more to say now than you did before. Maybe now you're ready to speak. I, for one, think that we need more representation of the various experiences of people that span the years from 1965 to 1980, represented in popular culture, than we do already. I think there's a lot of these stories that are not told, or they're told with in a way that's way oversimplified. I'd like to tell the story of growing up in Miami in the 80s. During the time of Miami Vice, I could tell the story of going to Bennington College in the 90s 
I could tell the story of living in New York, also in the 90s and in the 2000s, or being an expat in Europe when Obama was elected president and coming home to only enjoy a couple of years of the aftermath of that before we elected Trump. That's just me. But I love to hear more Gen X stories, more stories about, from people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and more examination of all the new chapters that we're building into our life book. In a future episode on the topic of self-realization versus salary, I'm going to talk about creative people who came to their career later, which is always a comfort to those of us who haven't published tons of stuff or feel like they haven't completely self-realized as a creative person or gotten their work out there. It's always a comfort to hear that people that you know of that are famous and well-established and beloved started their career later. It doesn't mean we're going to get to the same place or even close, but I think it is. it fights against that mindset that we are winding down and that this is over and that we should loosen our grip on life. Some of the people who published later as writers are Raymond Chandler, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Frank McCourt. They were in their 50s and 60s. And Proust and Henry Miller and Toni Morrison all got published for the first time in their 40s. And there is a Portuguese director who started working at 75 years old and lived to be 106. So it's never too late to start. It's never too late to just be yourself. It's never too late to stop asking other people for permission. Well, that about wraps it up. This has been the very first episode of Actual People. I hope you enjoyed it. It definitely gives you a peek into my perspective and hopefully acts as a signal fire to my tribe to keep listening. You've been listening to Actual People. This show is written, directed, and executive produced by me, your host, Chauncey Zalkin. Show sound designed by Eric Aaron. Click on the link below to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And don't forget to leave a review. I'll be sharing my favorites. You can find our socials and all links to deeper dives into these topics at chaunceyzalkin.com and on my substack at chaunceyzalkin.substack.com. Actual People is available wherever you get your podcasts. 